This morning we'll go right back to these pointing out instructions from Padmasambhava. Again, I think I'll just read through it, and then I'll talk about it somewhat later this afternoon. But to give you a very, very brief, a brief uh, preface to it, he's going to be pointing it out, that is Rikpa, by way of its transcendence of what are called the eight extremes of conceptual elaboration. Okay, now these crop up a lot. You find these in Nagarjuna, you find it in Dzogchen, everywhere. Um, and the fundamental theme here is that Rikpa transcends all of them. And all of these parameters, all these fundamental classifications of reality by which we make sense of the world in very, very fundamental, one can say, existential ways. We're trying to figure out something, and it, does it exist or not? Reincarnation, or God, or atoms. Time of, at the time of Einstein, 1905, physicists, chemists were still, still struggling. Do atoms exist or not? So do they exist or not? You know? um, does the ether exist or not? So really, really fundamental. Uh, is, it's, and so forth. So that's, that's perhaps the mo- most fundamental of them. But there are three other pairs among these eight extremes of conceptual elaboration. And once again, in a manner of speaking, one could say that the process of identifying Rikpa is a process of elimination. Not that you get the right, not that you hold a target, you get the right answer, and then you direct your attention to it. Bing! You know, you know that can't be it, right? So it has to be what's left over when you are maintaining the flow of cognizance and you're looking beyond or, or cutting through all these frameworks, all these matrices, these veils, one could also say, are these conceptual elaborations, which are enormously useful for navigating our way around this world. You know? um, but the conceptual frameworks have to be transcended to realize Rikpa. So it is said so often, of the Buddha mind, and just generally in the Mahayana tradition especially, but it's there in the Pali, but especially the Mahayana, it's said that the Dhammakaya is simply inconceivable. Inconceivable. And then there are large tomes written by some of the great adepts, and the Buddha himself spoke at length about the nature of his own mind in the Pali Canon, in the Mahayana Sutras. And so you can say, well, wait, you, you can't have your cake and eat it, right? You can't say it's ineffable, it's inexpressible, and then keep on talking. Uh, Wittgenstein, I can't quote him, but it's a very famous statement by Wittgenstein, and that is that, I'm going to paraphrase it badly, but I'm just going to say this, that when you get to the limits of language, stop talking. When you come to that which is ineffable, then don't keep on talking. And that's a kind of a simple point. He said it more elegantly than I have, but that was the gist of it. Uh, so what are these Buddhists doing? You know, uh, Referring to something, whether it's Dhammakaya or whether it's Rikpa, primordial consciousness, and saying it's ineffable, and then we find these seven great treasures of Longjemba, hundreds upon hundreds of pages, discussing, right? Discussing the great perfection, the nature of Rikpa, and so forth. Or here, we'll find in these pointing out instructions, we're going to find, we've already, it's already been said, Rikpa is inexpressible by way of speech or thought. Ma sam, ma sam, jutle, de transcends articulation by speech or by thought. And then he's going to keep on talking to point out. So, are they confused? That would be quite odd if they're all confused, if nobody kind of pointed this out to them, like, <coughs> excuse me. <laughs> you know? uh, well, it points to a very simple point that is recognized by a number of Western philosophers, certainly recognized in Buddhism, and that is there are two different ways of using language, at least, so I'm not trying to be exclusive here, but one is to use language in order to describe, you know? So I can describe myself. I was born in 1950, and I was raised in Southern California, and, and, and Scotland, and Israel, and Switzerland, and then came back, and so, and so I can give you a narrative. And you can listen to my narrative, and by way of that narrative, as I, as I point out things in time, and space, and so forth, then you get a brief, accurate, conventionally accurate little bio-sketch of this, this fellow, right? That's good. That's what biographies are for, that wonderful biography I've read of Einstein. So we use that very frequently, right? But I can also say, 
Um, look right up at this tanka here, to my right. Just look at it very carefully. And then look right towards the top of it. You see? Right there. And, and this is not, by the way, people listening to podcasts, I'm not doing that little trick of, you know, listening, listening to something way over there to my right, and there's nothing there. People are looking here. There's a tanka just to my right. It's of Padmasambhava. But now look at what's just on his left shoulder, if you can. I know it's not very clear from a distance, but look at that, that thing that just above his left shoulder. And you can. But when you do that, you're just looking very carefully, right? And I was pointing it out. I was giving you pointing out instructions to the katanka that Padmasambhava has resting on his left shoulder. That was pointing out instructions. I didn't describe it at all, did I? But if you came up close to it, I could say, well, now, and don't, but okay, everybody, you can come up close. Now look exactly, if, very carefully now, at that, at that which is above his left shoulder. That which is. That which is, without even giving it a name. And then, huh. Or Tsongaba, and this happens frequently, Tsongaba when he's describing, what is it? Actually, in the context of shamatha and cultivating the quality of awareness that you're seeking to sustain in shamatha. He says it's like, it's, very, it's a very sweet analogy or image that comes to mind. This is also descriptive. When we go to analogies and metaphors and parables, they're descriptive. They're telling a story. Right? Here's a very short story. Imagine a little child, a pre-verbal child, but very bright, very perceptive, but you know, just or the, you know, marginally articulate, uh, just learning language, being brought into a Tibetan temple. A big one, you know, like Led Up Ling. I have not been to it yet, but apparently the temple there that Sogyerambache has created is quite, quite impressive, right? And if you've been to Tibet or Sikkim and so forth, I've been to Gawakama, but to Rumtek, quite impressive, big temple. And so the point here is that if you go into a traditional, oh, Gantin Tukurambache's temple, man, that's really impressive. Bhutan, beautiful. And the point here is, you go into these temples. Now, I'm, my most recent uh, experience was in Gantuntuku's Gangte Gomba, at about oh, 10,000 feet altitude in Bhutan. Beautiful temple, all renovated, new, new uh, images, new murals, uh, wall paintings, you know. And they're really breathtaking. And they're also, I mean, they're very Bhutanese, Tibetan. They're full of color and light and so, so rich, you know. So imagine that you're two or three years old and your mama takes you by the hand and this is your first visit to one of these Tibetan temples. So this is Songaba, and he's describing this. He says, what will the child do? The child will be not knowing anything about iconography and influences of Kham and China and Nepal and artisans and all that. Just The child will walk into the temple and just go... looking around, kind of taking it all in, but isn't thinking, ah, oh, very good, that's probably 8th century Eastern Kham influence. Yeah, I, th- I can see a little bit of the Nawari influence on that one. Oh, that, but that's more, oh, there's a very ancient one there. Uh, yeah, oh, that's a nice depiction of Chakram Zavara. But then where, where's Vajrayogini? You know, won't be doing that. That's what a, a scholar of Buddhist iconography would do. There's nothing wrong with that. But then you're formatting everything, templating everything. Very good quality. Oh, there the artist was only mediocre. Why'd they include that? Oh, that one's very... Blah, 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 blah. But the little kid, who's not dumb, very perceptive, could have an extremely high IQ if you like, but is not doing all the projecting. So the mama's giving the little child, pointing out instructions. Just come and see. That was ehi pasi in the Pali canon. Ehi pasi. Come and see. Come and see. That was the pointing out instructions that some of the senior disciples of the Buddha gave to newcomers when they were asking about Buddhist worldview and theories and all of that. And he just said, come and see. Pointing out instructions, right? That's what Padmasambhava is giving us here. So when I'm reading it, I'm just going to read it. You know, you can, then you can read it. You like Give yourself your own oral transmission, your own pointing out instructions. Your voice is as good as mine, probably better, especially if your native language isn't English. Um, but the point there is you could easily take these pointing out instructions as food for thought. And think, ah, interesting idea, that. Yes, let's ponder it. Where's my beard? I shall pull it. You know, and reflect upon it and cogitate. And I think I could write an article about this, how this relates to, and then, you know, how about Kashmiri Shaivism? 
<laughs> I think I could write a good article there. I see some parallels here. And Shankara, oh, there's definitely some parallels that invite the Vedanta here. And Nicholas of Cusa, definitely there's a good connection. You know, so you could do that trip. And there's nothing wrong with that. But of course, you're never going to realize Rikpa by going into this whole flow of cogitation and cogitation and more cogitation. So you, you can do that if you wish. It's your choice. Or you can do what Padmasambhava is intending. He's giving you pointing out instructions to cut through all the conceptual elaborations and see what is there beyond them. Bearing in mind, last point, is the only perspective from which you can ascertain Rikpa is Rikpa. You can't ascertain it from the perspective of your coarse mind and you can't ascertain it from the perspective of substrate consciousness either. Right? It can only know itself, so therefore you need to release, release. So he's giving us a blade here to cut through the veils, almost like a whole series of spider webs, to cut through the veils of the conceptual mind, cut through the subtle grasping, subtle reification, even that it can persist in the substrate consciousness, and cut through, cut through all the way to the ground. And that's what the point of the instructions is. Okay? Also. So we'll start with the chanting, and then you can move to a comfortable position.
Omahum, may the Guru Pemezirihum. Settle your body, speech, and mind in a natural state. Above all, let your awareness come to rest in stillness, loose and relaxed, free of grasping, self-illuminating, self-cognizing, simply being aware of being aware. This is a continuation now of Padmasambhava's earlier pointing out instructions. So if you record this for yourself, you may want to do so in one unbroken stream. Referring back to pristine awareness, primordial consciousness, Padmasambhava continues, it is not grounded in the nature of any shape or color, so it is free of the extreme of eternalism or substantialism. So I will give a little bit of commentary. So if you're attending to some thing, some entity, some substance, and you're not doing the practice. While it is not existent, it is a steady, clear, natural luminosity that is not created by anyone, so it is free of the extreme of nihilism. Commentary, in other words, this is transcending category of substance, of entity, of existence, but also transcends the category of non-existence. Of nihilism.
So release these categories, these conceptual frameworks from your mind. Dissolve them into space. It did not originate from a certain time, nor did it arise from certain causes and conditions. So it is free of the extreme of birth. The mind does not die or cease at a certain time, so it is free of the extreme of cessation. So brief commentary. This pristine awareness transcends the category of arising, of birth occurring at a certain point in time, and likewise ceasing, coming to an end at a certain point of time. If you're attending to anything that does, you're missing the target. There is no target. While it is not existent, its unimpeded creative power appears in all manner of ways. So it is free of the extreme of singularity. Commentary, that is to say, it's not one thing. Although it appears in various ways, it is liberated without having any inherent nature, so it is free of the extreme of multiplicity. Thus it is called the view that is free of extremes. Brief commentary, we may wonder this rikpa. Is it one? Is your rikpa and mine the same? Do we all dissolve into the one rikpa of the Buddha? Do we lose our identity? Or are there many? Does each individual have his own or her own rikpa? These two are conceptual frameworks. Rikpa transcends the conceptual frameworks of one and many.
It is said to be free of bias and partiality. This, is, this alone is called the mind of the Buddha. The mind of a sentient being, that which becomes a Buddha, that which wanders in samsara, and that which experiences joy and sorrow, are all this alone. this did not exist, there would be no one to experience samsara or nirvana or any joy and sorrow which would imply a comatose extreme of nihilism. This alone has been created by no one, but is self-emergent, primordial and spontaneous. So it is called primordial consciousness.
Such awareness as this does not originate from the profound instructions of a guru, nor does it originate from your sharp intelligence. Primordially and originally, the natural character of the ultimate reality of the mind exists just like that. But previously, previously, it has been obscured by conate ignorance. So you do not recognize or ascertain it. You are not satisfied and you do not believe. So until now, you have remained in confusion. But now grant it to the master of wealth. Brief commentary. Grant it to your own rikpa, the wealth of all bounties, of all virtues of all wisdom, compassion, and power. Grant this to your own rikpa. And Padmasambhava concludes, know your own nature, know your own flaws. This is called identifying the mind. Let's continue practicing in silence.
Golazo. When you're practicing shamatha and trying to release your mind into the substrate consciousness, if you succeed, or insofar as you succeed, then you're viewing your own mind, the displays of your mind, your thoughts, emotions, the chit-chat, the dreams, and so on, all the activities, all the displays of the mind. You're seeing them from the perspective of substrate consciousness, which is not a human consciousness, so it's more primal, right? So you're viewing, this is what you would see, and that is from the substrate consciousness, you would see your mind arising, like it's just seeing like clouds forming out of the sky. And you must know whether during the, during the waking state, as you're observing the space of your mind, or whether you're in the dream, and having a lucid dream, viewing it from the perspective of the substrate consciousness, that all these appearances of the mind, they're all empty. You must know that, because you know where they're coming from. The appearances are coming from your substrate, which means they can't possibly be really there. They're coming out of just empty space of your mind, the substrate. But you also know that all of the subjective impulses of the mind, the desires, hopes, fears, emotions, and so forth, they're all just kind of springing forth, like, like a little illusion creator. They're all just flowing forth from your substrate consciousness. So you know they can't be real because you're viewing them from a more primal perspective. These are all then apparitions, right? All apparitions. So like Lerap Lingba says, when you settle the mind in its natural state, then you, you non-conceptually know that nothing can harm your mind in terms of all the appearances arising, whether in the dream or the waking state, the mental events, none of them can harm you. You should never have depression again. Because nothing that arises in your mind, whether it's a memory, whether it's a, a, you know, whatever it may be, it's empty. How can it possibly harm you when you're viewing it from that perspective? Now, if you're enmeshed in it, oh, drive you to suicide. One suicide for every eight seconds. Every eight seconds, somebody's killing themselves. I just read that yesterday. Well, that's not generally because they feel physically bad. Sometimes, yeah. But mostly, of course, it's mind. So, if it can drive you to suicide one every, every eight seconds around the planet, then these are people who are, taking, are enmeshed in their minds and they find it unbearable and they feel this will be an escape from mind. Now, when you come out of your shamatha and you engage with the world, then you may still know, well, all these appearances, of course, the appearances of colors and the appearance of sounds and so forth, they're simply in the space of a mind. You still know that. So yes, this is very illusory, but, but, start smacking things around, you know? But there's a real world out there. I mean, really, come on. There's a real world out there, and it's really absolutely out there. Uh, our appearances are illusory. They're just taking place in the space of the mind. But there's a real physical world out there. And then I can't take any less seriously the impulses of my own mind, my sufferings and my joys, why would I take them any less seriously? Why would I think they're any less real than bricks or mortar? They're different for sure, but less real? Why on earth would anybody think? We care much more about our joys and sorrows than our bricks and mortars, right? So then you wind up with, for starters, a dualism, but Buddhism never stops at dualism. It immediately goes to pluralism, immediately. So it's much more William James. It's not Descartes. Of course, it's not materialism. It's much more pluralism. Information, for example, is not physical. It's not mental. It certainly has causal efficacy. Time is not physical. It's not mental. It certainly has causal efficacy, and so on. So, but that's just, that's just viewing from the perspective of substrate consciousness. Now, but what if you really follow the implications? You dwell there. You saturate your mind. You're just living in, going back and back and back to the substrate consciousness. And then you come out and you engage with the world, and you really, honey, if you're really a radical empiricist, I mean, it's like, I'm going to take experience correctly, and I'm going to be very skeptical of any of my projections, conceptual projections, and reifications upon appearances. And then you might say, just wait a minute. What do we really ever know about the physical world other than appearances? Who's ever leaped the fence? to what Kant called the ding on sich, what's really out there. Who's ever leapt the fence? Who's ever gone outside of the Thunderdome? You know, who's ever gone outside to actually see what's really out there? Well, they learned this in the 20th century in physics, you know, that 
every time we make a measurement, what we're measuring, what comes, the appearances, the information is always rising relative to your system of measurement. You can, never, you can never say, well, I want just God's measurement, please. I don't want man's measurement or women's measurement. I want, well, so sorry, not for sale. It's always your system of measurement that you devise with your questions and all the information, every appearance you ever get is relative to your system of measurement. And so what's out there independent of all those systems of measurement? And Werner Heisenberg says, do not attribute existence to that which is unknowable in principle. What is unknowable in principle, not that we haven't gotten good enough technology or we haven't tried hard enough, what is unknowable in principle is the outer world as it exists independently of any system of measurement whatsoever. That's unknowable in principle. You know what he just said? Do not attribute existence to the external world as it exists independently of Measurement. That's what he just said. Shall I say that again, or maybe ten times? Should we cite that 108 times? You know? Do not attribute existence to that which is unknowable in principle. Why would you? It's kind of like also common sense. Something, schmorbles are unknowable in principle. But there are a lot of them, believe me. That just doesn't make any sense. Define schmorble. It's unknowable in principle then why are you talking? It's kind of common sense too, right? So those who follow that common sense, follow that radical empiricism, they wind up being chittamatrans. All that we ever know is appearances to the mind, appearances to the substrate consciousness. And so therefore, instead of laying the ontological burden of reality onto some unknowable, presumably physical, but that's a conceptual construct created by humans, Space, time, matter, energy, constructs created by humans, instead of doing that, instead of pretending that we're gods, creating a world that exists independently of us, or discovering it somehow, say, give it a rest. My, or maybe we should start taking the mind much more seriously and considering maybe it's karma that gives us this commonality of experience and not some external universe that exists independently of anybody. Now karma, the substrate consciousness, that starts taking on an enormous role. The intertwining, the collective karma, the interweaving, the endless net of multiple sentient beings with collective karma and intertwining shared experience, intersubjective experience by way of their substrate consciousnesses, right? But all of that is a prelude as we cut through the coarse mind to the substrate consciousness and view our minds from that perspective, view sensory appearances from that perspective. We're cutting through here while the substrate consciousness is cutting through any differentiation, it is perspective that cuts through any differentiation between human and non-human perspectives. That if this is shared by Buddhist worldview, hell beings, pretas, animals, humans, asuras, and devas, it cuts through all those divisions. There's no difference. From this perspective, all of those are derivative. This is deeper, primal. So there is no difference. From this perspective, no difference. And now we cut through that. Garap dorje, prahevajra. Cut through the substrate consciousness. Cut through that to a dimension of consciousness from the perspective of which there is no difference between sentient beings and Buddhas. That deep. The primordial consciousness of an ant and the primordial consciousness of Buddha Shakyamuni, no difference. No high, no low, no difference. From the perspective of Rikpa, there's no difference between samsara and nirvana. How about that one? From that perspective, of the same taste, same nature, it's deeper than both, right? So now you're viewing reality from a perspective that transcends even the difference between a Buddha and a sentient being. That's what he was getting at there. There's no differentiation. There's no two sides of the fence. It's beneath the fence. And it's beneath or transcends all conceptual frameworks altogether. Well, not so. So we'll have a bit of commentary this afternoon. As much as you can through the course of the day, let your awareness be still. So let the, the world move around you. The world rise up to meet you. The world dissolve right back into the substrate, right back into Dharmadhatu if you can. But as much as you can, maintain that stillness. A sentient being, you might recall, semche doa. A sentient being is one who's on the move. 
whether you're a hell being, deva, what have you, you're on the move. You're looking for something you don't have or wanting to get, a, get away from something you do have. That's pretty much, isn't it? That's pretty much it, is. it, isn't it? I'm moving because I, I want something I don't have or I don't like what I do have and I'm moving. That's why every eight seconds people are committing suicide. They're trying to move away from what they do have, right? They don't know where they're going, but they figure where they're going will be better than this. Otherwise, they wouldn't do it, right? That's a, their bet, the stakes are very high there. They've made a big bet, a very big bet. Literally, I bet their lives on it. Okay. That's what it is to be a sentient being. We're on the move. Whereas Rikpa is still. But it's not still because it's held still. It's still because it's beyond time. It's not still versus movement. It's stillness beyond coming and going. Beyond coming and going. That's enough. Something like that. Enjoy your day.